it's interesting. I don't think we ever had the previous president give a take. We just didn't. We didn't go there. No, I, I think, think we, did. we did. Yeah, I think we did. Or we did. I think Neil had to read it. Yeah, Neil had to oh, read it. I, it was a tweet. Now I remember it. Now yeah, I remember yeah. that. And it was yeah. great. It was the best. It was the best oh, take. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> <laughs> We're not doing that anymore. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is July 6th, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining us from Pennsylvania is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hi, Sarah. I'm still at the undisclosed underground bunker location. Nice. Just watching sports all the time. It's the sports <laughs> bunker. Did, did you have a nice uh, 4th of July weekend in your bunker? Oh, yeah, it was great. I could faintly hear the sound of fireworks through the uh, thick bunker walls. Oh, good. Thank you. Good to hear. <laughs> and from California is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Sarah. How you doing? <laughs> good. How was your 4th of July? <laughs> oh, my 4th of July was fantastic, Sarah. Slash, it was fine. I, I'm, not, I'm not a big fireworks guy. They don't do a lot for me. So you're, you're not like Jason Pierre-Paul. I, oh, wow. Just pot shots coming in. Early. <laughs> uh, guys, I thought for a hot second last night that we might end up with a um, Stanley Cup winner. But but alas, no, the Canadians live to fight another day. Uh, do they have any shot here, you think? Yeah, about a 4% chance, uh, according to my right. uh, yeah, post-game calculations. Chance. <laughs> <laughs> I concur. I want to see. I higher. do want to see the three straight. Or, well, well, it would be three straight now. The four straight from down three zero. Well, where would that rank? Would that surpass the the Red Sox over the Yankees? Because a, they were bigger underdogs. B, it happened in the championship stage, not the the semifinal. I don't know. Something to think about as as far as epic comebacks from down three zero go. It probably won't surpass the the Red Sox Yankees because it's hockey, and ultimately no one cares. But, <laughs> but and the tell rivalry. That to as- those, yeah, <laughs> we'll tell that to those long-suffering Canadian fans. Yes, yes, long-suffering. But yeah, the rivalry probably made the Red Sox Yankees uh, thing bigger, just because of how much how much it the Red Sox could stick it to the Yankees then. And um, a Rod, the a Rod factor. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. There's no a Rod in this series. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Well, we'll see. <laughs> Can, if the Canadians can can keep it interesting, I, I don't know. It wasn't looking good in those first couple of games. It was like, oh yeah, yeah. yeah the, you have a very very good team against a mediocre team that happens to be in the Stanley Cup Finals. So, <laughs> what do you expect? I'm yeah, so sick about, of Tampa. I'm sick of the Lightning. I, I, the Lightning have never done it for me. Maybe it's the lack of pluralized nicknames. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, um, which isn't really a thing for me, but it annoys me for Tampa for some reason. Are there any others you don't like? Any other lack non-pluralized? I don't like the Jazz at all, just because I, I just think it's so dumb that the Utah Jazz. It's just like, yes. I know there's a lot of, you know, I hate all like the geographical uh, nonsense, like Memphis Grizzlies. There's no Grizzlies anywhere near Tennessee. Uh, there's no lakes in LA that aren't reservoirs. Uh, So those initially, you know, are going to bother me a lot, but jazz, 
now not pluralized and doesn't make sense. So that's that's pretty high on the list. I mean, lightning, at least there's a, presumably a lot of lightning in Tampa. I've, I've never really been to Tampa, but I would assume it's humid. There's a lot of <laughs> thunderstorms. You got to figure, right? I, I enjoy this like mini version of, of a get off the <laughs> field from Jeff. Just like <laughs> ranting about team names he doesn't like. <laughs> On today's show, we'll preview the NBA Finals, which gets started tonight. Then we'll talk about the Olympics and how the International Olympic Committee keeps making it harder to love the Olympics. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The NBA Finals begin tonight between the Phoenix Suns and the Milwaukee Bucks, as well as the third contender throughout this NBA season, Injuries. The Bucks may be starting the game without Giannis Antetokounmpo, who suffered a knee injury in the Eastern Conference Finals. But the Bucks won games five and six against the Hawks with impressive showings from Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, and Brooke Lopez. That led Skip Bayless on Fox's Undisputed with Skip and Shannon to just ask a question about how we should understand the Bucks if they win a game in Phoenix without Giannis. If they do steal one of these games... It's going to make you wonder what I brought up on Friday's show. Are they playing better, more efficient offensive basketball without Giannis? I know it's, it, look, in a vacuum, it's, it's preposterous to say they're better they're off better without, without Giannis. And, and I'm the first to tell you, no, they're not in a vacuum. Right. I'm just eye testing what I just saw in back-to-back games, right. five and six, against Atlanta at Milwaukee and then at Atlanta. Right. And I think it was really hard to win that game six at Atlanta mm-hmm. because you know how crazed that crowd was they, they and were. how it was just on the edge of their seats, mm-hmm. at least to force it back to a game seven Correct. at Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. So what my eye test is telling me is they have three guys who have made all-star teams, and all of a sudden they felt empowered, emboldened to star. Right. So let's skip the oh, eye test. Oh, boy. <laughs> Was that intentional? Uh, <laughs> no comment. Let's actually let's actually look at the numbers. Neil, are the Bucks a better team without their two-time MVP? No, and I think Skip even kind of realized that as he was <laughs> yeah, saying he it. Back, obviously, he backtracking. Yeah, he backtracked. It's, it's nice when you have a take where someone starts backtracking uh, before it's even done. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I do kind of see the fact that they're. They're a different team. I think they're obviously having Giannis adds a dimension that they didn't have without him. But the fact that they were still able to win, especially in the game when Trey Young was back, yes, he was not at 100%, and you could kind of tell that he was hobbled. And maybe that would have made the difference in the in the series uh, and, and extended it for sure if he had been. But you could just see that they are a different team without him. And it tapped a little bit more into Holiday and Middleton's, you know, skills uh, when they sort of can become the stars themselves. And and these are two guys that have a history of being, you know, big time players. They're not, you know, third wheels on this Bucks caravan or whatever you want to call it. I don't know where my <laughs> metaphor is going there. Uh, but, you know, the, the Giannis is obviously the best player and the star of the team. But we've even said it before. Chris Middleton is their closer. He's the guy that sort of when they need buckets late in a close game, they actually turn to him to be able to generate that offense. And you saw that against the Hawks when he basically took over that game. 
And really, at every possible chance that the Hawks sort of thought about narrowing the gap and squeezing their way back into the game, Chris Middleton was like, nope, not going to happen. And I do think that that speaks to just the the kind of player that he is, that oftentimes he does get overshadowed by Giannis. And he's not as good as Giannis. He doesn't do as many different things as Giannis, but he can do some things that Giannis can't. And some of that involves shooting, uh, <laughs> particularly the way Giannis has been shooting uh, in the postseason. And the same goes for Holiday uh, in comparison with Giannis. So it's, it's a different team. It's a different look. Uh, I, I think that they would love to get Giannis back as soon as possible possible. Probably the biggest reason why they're underdogs against the Suns going in in the betting markets is that we don't know what Giannis's status is. But I thought it was great to see those other guys step up and sort of show everyone that it's the Bucks are not just Giannis and some some scrubs or whatever, you know, sometimes we have the tendency to think about on a team that has like, oh, they don't have a big three. They don't even have a big two. It's just Giannis and some guys. <laughs> it's like, no, it's like they have a, a really good cast of, uh, you know, supporting players around him. And they're really like the fit is really good. And, and I think they complement each other really well. And they play tough defense. And that's the thing that I think also has been overshadowed a little bit in this Bucks run. But maybe we're starting to appreciate it is this team is really, really good defensively. And they have a lot of guys that they can kind of throw at you in different matchups that can frustrate opponents. Yeah, absolutely. I do think, you know, the the one thing that is sort of interesting about the Bucks without Giannis is how their strategy changed and and it worked. And that's like I think too often when that when that happens, it's like, oh, well, that's the star isn't even needed or whoever is missing isn't even needed because they made it it's work. It's the without Ewing him. theory, yeah, right? The right, old Bill exactly. Simmons Ewing theory. Yeah. Oh. And it's like, no, it's just, it was good. Like, it was a good strategy to change what they were doing. You know, Brooke Lopez doesn't normally just occupy the paint. He's he's out on the, a wing. He's taking three-pointers. Maybe he shouldn't be. But, like, they did change that without yeah. Giannis driving. Yeah. He basically turned into Shaq. And <laughs> that that worked. And I... <laughs> I, I do think that that actually that wrinkle of how Lopez plays and how he plays at the rim without him was was kind of the most interesting. But I think they wouldn't be here if it was just Giannis. And I think right. one man armies like true just one star teams don't make it this far, um, even if, if that one star is at full capacity. We see that over and over. This yeah. has always been true. And and teams can step up. Like, look at what, you know, the Clippers were able to do in a a brief window without Kawhi and of course the team you know Middleton can step up and have a huge game but we but we've also seen games where Middleton's been bad and you want your full roster and certainly your best player the guy who scored 80 combined points in two games uh against the Suns this regular season to be out there but can they win a game or two if he like let's say he misses the first three games can they win one or two I don't think that would surprise anyone um and it would put the bucks in a great position I actually think I actually think the 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 most damaging thing they could do it, uh, would be to play Giannis at a limited capacity because a guy who relies so much on a, his athleticism and what he can do you know on both sides with that being limited it, it does become a detriment to the team it's not like he's a guy who can hang around the perimeter and and you know even if he's his mobility's not quite there you can still knock down threes we know that's not Giannis's 
Forte. So I think he'll just be kind of wasting space there and that that could cause problems. So I think the smart move would be to make sure he's absolutely 100. Don't don't do a, a James Harden thing with him because I think that could be where Budenholzer and them get in trouble. But I, they're smart enough to know that. They don't need me to tell them that. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. And he can't even be a decoy because nobody really respects his yeah. his shooting. Like, there's no reason. Yeah. If, if you know that he can't drive on you uh, and attack the basket, he, he's such a different player. That takes away, like, almost everything that he can do. It's not really that different. I mean, when Trey Young played at the end of the Bucks hawks series, he was not at full capacity. And you could really tell. And it was it was... It was sad. It was a bummer because I wanted to see, you know, full Trey Young going all out and, and he couldn't really do that. And I think it would be yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think I don't think that would make the Bucks better. Like all Giannis makes the Bucks better. Half Giannis, twenty five percent Giannis does not make the Bucks better. Half Giannis is better than a lot of 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 people, of uh NBA players, but in this case I just don't think that would work for them. I'm going to go to Starbucks and order a half Giannis with uh, <laughs> whipped cream on top. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, let's look at the at the Suns. They're, they're 69% favorites in our model at the moment, and that's without Giannis playing tonight and a little unsure on, on his status throughout the series. Jeff, what, what is it that's making the Suns seem so, look so dominant right now? Is it just that they're healthy? I think, look, I think these teams are very evenly matched. I mean, we I, I don't want to dwell too much on the small sample size of their two regular season games, but they were both one-point games. And you look at some of their more advanced metrics, and they line up both, on both sides, offense and defense, almost exactly the same. So I do think in terms of, you know, as Neil mentioned, in terms of the, the I guess, the betting odds or the prediction market, uh, I think the, the health really is huge. But I've been saying this from the whole playoffs. I mean, Phoenix is going to win the NBA title on just being the most healthy. It's a war of attrition. We've seen this in every series. I, it's, I can't think of one series that wasn't affected significantly by injuries. And time again, Phoenix, you know, except for the, you know, losing Paul for a little bit, has had their entire rotation out there. And I do think that's a huge factor. So it, it sounds overly simplistic, but I think in many cases, that is what's going on here. And I also think that, you know, as has been everyone's tendency throughout the whole playoffs and the whole season and however long of a period you want, the Suns are not fully appreciated for how good they are. We're just starting to kind of give them credit as well, which I think is kind of similar to the Bucks and especially the the non-Giannis Bucks. But the it's really a testament to a the build of this team that James Jones has put together, there's a reason he won executive of the year. But if you think about like the the depth of the team, but also the complementary roles of the team, everyone has a job and they do it at a super high level. And they there's like contingency plans if somebody is having a bad night uh, and, and everyone can kind of uh, step up and make big plays. I just love the build of this Suns team and we're just now giving them credit for it. And I say we, you know, it's like the media in general. And Monty Williams as coach also, I think, is a big factor there of, of kind of figuring out how to use these pieces. And like, you know, Chris Paul uh, is another case of, 
going out, getting him, knowing that this was the right, you know, kind of piece to put on top of a team to take them into the finals. And, and not a lot of people were thinking that even especially before they had that great run at the end of in the bubble at the end of last season. So to sort of just have this plan, put it together, have such a well-built roster, you know, I think that that's as much of a factor as like, even if Giannis was healthy, yeah, it would be, you know, a, a pretty evenly matched series in the odds and would be a better series as a fan to watch. But also like the Suns are just a really great team and and they've done a great job of, of building up. I think we're always slow to pick the team that we haven't seen in the playoffs. I mean, we're not counting the bubble, which remember we were doing a whole podcast, you know, more than a year ago about why were they even in the bubble? But <laughs> it reminds, you know, the first year the Warriors were a contender or, or something like that. You don't, uh, team they get overlooked just because we, we tend to go back on what we've seen already work in the playoffs and, and we hadn't seen this. So it won't happen again, that's for sure. And that's especially true in the NBA where there is a demonstrable effect usually where the teams that have won before tend to kind of pile up titles again and teams that haven't seem to always find a way to not win. So in some ways, this is kind of a paradigm-breaking team and really like finals matchup in general in some ways. Uh, But for the Suns especially, I love that, and I've been a very kind of vocal proponent of this, but I love that they are also an ode to the idea of building from the middle, not Mm -hmm. tanking. You know, they've had some bad years, of course, but they really built this team not necessarily through a tanking design. And that's true of the Bucks as well. I mean, the Bucks biggest moment was when they took Giannis and nobody really thought that I mean he was a project nobody thought for sure he would be the the player that turned this franchise around but uh to both franchises credit they sort of looked at things and were like look let's just incrementally add talent and see where it takes us and especially yeah the Bucks were refused to tear it down to the bolts and and do like a Sixer style process rebuild And I think both teams are showing that it's possible to build a finals team. Now, maybe we'll look at this as like a one-off and, you know, it'll be the Lakers again next year. It'll be some of these other teams that we've seen a lot before. uh, And and then we'll be, you know, reversing course on all of this. But I just love the fact that this is in a sport where so few teams seem like they have a chance and it's always the same teams at the desirable free agent locations and coastal cities, you know, all these things that um, you you have uh, an example of teams just sort of building in a different way and actually succeeding with it. And it, and it's great that it happened the year after the bubble, right? Because if, if we had gotten Bucks versus Suns, especially with the Suns there as favorites in the NBA finals in the bubble, people would have been like, oh, this deserves an asterisk. Yeah. You know, this is just a product of the weird shortened pandemic season bubble. Uh, and they would have written it off. So I love the fact that like in the bubble, the Lakers, which is like the the most sort of boring championship pick <laughs> ever, the, the you know, team that always seems to, to win, uh, were the ones that won. And then in the season post bubble, it's the Suns and the, and the Bucks. That I, I just love that. You can't even slap an asterisk on it. Yeah, that's actually another reason I really hope Giannis plays. Because I, I want, if, if the Suns end up winning, I don't want people to say, well, it's just because they kept facing teams with 
you know, their stars who were injured, which like, sure, but that does also happen every year that that just happens. People get hurt in the playoffs. But so another reason for Giannis to come back. The the, the Bucks benefited just as much from that. I mean, look at, you know, Trey sure. Young obviously wasn't, but that wasn't even the only <laughs> Atlanta. Kyrie, Harden, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. No, um, for sure. I, it, it, it is interesting, though. You, you definitely, this is obvious, but you definitely need to draft well in the NBA. Um, it's just so important. I mean, I, that's not true, I think, in the other three sports in that I feel like there are other ways to team build without the draft. Look at the look at the, the Rams who have given up drafting players altogether in the NFL, and, and they're still, <laughs> we're not going to do it. Um, yeah. At, but you know, Aiton obviously was a one overall, but we've seen a lot of one overalls not work out. And yeah, maybe they should have took Luca or, or something like that, but it wasn't a total misfire. But then taking Booker, a one and done freshman from Kentucky who barely like played that much for that Kentucky team. I, I think he might've come off the bench, which is a great pick. And it reminds me of the Curry pick. It's like these little picks and these drafts have huge huge ramifications for how successful these teams are and you, a you have to find like superstars sometimes outside of the the top five or something like that the, the unsure fire things but you also can't misfire on, on when you do have one of those top picks which is a huge yeah that's a huge argument against tanking too because you just it's you're not always going to hit. You're just not. I mean, the Sixers, for having Embiid and Simmons, I mean, and there's some argument now about whether Simmons for was now. really. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, you know, Tybal was a, what ended up being a miss. Now, he might end up having a great NBA career, but that obviously did not work out as the Sixers wanted. So, yeah, you have to hit. So, Fultz. Yeah. 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 All right. We can leave this discussion here for now. Let's take a break, and then we'll come back to talk about the Olympics. The 2020 Tokyo Olympics finally begin in just a couple of weeks, but these games, of course, have already made plenty of headlines. At the U.S. track trials last month, Shakari Richardson impressed everyone with her 100-meter dash, and she looked prepared to challenge for the gold. But then Richardson tested positive for THC, the psychoactive element of marijuana, earning her a 30-day suspension from international competition. She will not be able to run the 100-meter dash. She could still run in the 4x100-meter relay at the Olympics, which won't take place until August, if selected by Team USA. Richardson's ban was one of many pieces of news this past week that felt, to me anyway, laser-focused on black women. Brianna McNeil, the 2016 gold medalist in the 100-meter hurdles, was given a five-year suspension over a wrong date she provided for the abortion she had last year that kept her from taking a drug test. Two female runners from Namibia were ruled ineligible to compete in the 400-meter race because their natural testosterone levels were above the completely arbitrary level set by a governing body. And the International Swimming Federation disallowed a swim cap designed for black women's hair. All of those things on top of the conversations about the havoc that creating spaces for the games causes in the host countries, often against their most vulnerable populations. All in all, it's been a bad news week for the Olympics. Even President Joe Biden weighed in on Richardson's ban. Sir, do you think the ban is fair? Do you think her ban is fair well, for marijuana? It's the, the rules are the rules. And everybody knows that the rules were going in. Whether they should remain that, that should remain a little different issue. 
That was an excellent dodge by the president. But I do, I, I think it's really important to reiterate that Richardson has not fought the suspension. So I'm, I'm very much over people saying she should have known the consequences. Like she did know the consequences. And that's, that's not the point. What I do want to talk about is whether that ban should remain the rule here. Jeff, what is the justification for the, the cannabis ban and the punishment involved? Yeah, I mean, I think it's stupid, to be <laughs> honest. I think it's a relic of a different time. I think our, and, and I say our, I'm going to look for now. I mean, let's get into the international complications with this in a bit. But for now, at least in this country, um, our opinion on on pot and weed and all that great stuff if you're a fan um has changed i mean what is it legal in 20 states and i think we know more about it and for in a lot of people's eyes it's it's not that much different than alcohol slash probably might even be better for you than alcohol and alcohol certainly is allowed so i do think it's a little bit of a relic and it it, it is a little frustrating especially um considering that anyone who's smoked weed or taken weed knows it's definitely not a performance enhancer if anything it might be working against you so if you look at you know the the, the criteria for the the banned substances it's one poses a health risk to athletes uh okay that's up for debate with cannabis but let's say it does uh two it has the potential to enhance performance i don't think it does i think it has the potential to hinder performance and three it violates the spirit of the sport and if you're just like, what, what does that even like, mean? I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. So I'm going to say no one does. I, generally, yeah. if you, you know, if you check two, uh, two of those three, it, it's a banned substance in this one barely checks one. So yeah, I think it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And we've seen athletes, you know, other sports be more lenient uh, on pod and all that. Uh, especially considering, I mean, what she was competing in Eugene, Oregon. I mean, uh, like, all you have to do is walk outside. You, you can probably fail a drug test just by, by going to the airport there. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense. That being said, if you look at the IOC, and this is part of me playing devil's advocate here, you look at the IOC and the International Olympic Committee and, and, and the WADA, the world, you know, anti-doping agency there. This is the, we are not in line with the way a lot of countries view this. I mean, even Japan, I think you can get, you know, multiple years in jail for possession of marijuana. Um, you can get executed still in some countries, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, if you have a certain amount of cannabis. So, you know, it, it is, you know, I think globally still viewed as um, a recreational drug that is harmful. So I think, you know, when you get to the Olympics, it does get a little more complicated. And, you know, she said she used it when she was dealing with the the death of her mother, which makes it even harder. And I think she, you know, Biden later, oh, he said in this quote, I mean, I, I think he was right that she has handled it well, which has made it really frustrating, I think, for a lot of fans who wanted to see her at the Olympics. And and by the way, the whole month thing and she could run the relay. I mean, that is just stupid. The Olympics and there's so many things that are so dumb, but. I hope she does get a chance to run that relay because I think she deserves it. And I'd like to see it. And the punitive nature of it also just seems 
off the charts. Uh, like she was able to, I guess, as part of a um, like uh, counseling program or something like that, she was able to get it down to one month. But typically, athletes who test positive for what's considered a, a, a substance of abuse, which, by the way, THC was classified, newly classified as that, which I think is really bizarre and sort of um, uh, against the the direction, as you mentioned, Jeff, that like most people's thinking is going, that they receive a three-month suspension and sometimes can be out, uh, suspended for like four years over it. So to me, it's like, hey, why is pot on that list? Like you said, Jeff, it's not a performance enhancer. It's a performance reducer, if anything, uh, and, and that there's just no justification for it. And localities i i do your point is well taken that like different localities have different laws around it in terms of like legal you know permissibility and and that the ioc is trying to kind of thread that needle with like hundreds of countries and trying to kind of make everyone happy and no one's going to be happy uh and that's probably the rationale for all the weird inexplicable head scratching things that they do but at the same time I just don't see how if it's not performance enhancing, then how is it like that should be where the the IOC's business in it starts and and stops like that should be the only part of it. And I totally understand banning performance enhancing drugs because we've seen with Russia and various other um, entities that there can be huge doping problems in different sports if this stuff is left unchecked. I mean, I know, Sarah, you're pro cheating, so it doesn't bother you. Uh, But, you know, I think the IOC does want to keep a vaguely level playing field. You know, I think that this is a case of that just going completely out of control because it has nothing to do with competitive balance or fairness or anything. It's just arbitrarily including a performance reducing substance on a list that will get you uh, suspended from the Olympics. It should be noted that WADA, you know, the World Anti-Doping Agency, did they did change the rules for the London Olympics. So changing the threshold for how much cannabis could be in your system. Part of this was because I, unlike some other drugs, it stays in your system a lot longer. And I think they changed it. So the threshold basically is testing whether you're having it in your system during the course of the Olympics rather. This is all still ridiculous considering it's pot. It's not healthy to anyone. But um, it used to be that you could get dinged for, you know, using it prior to the Olympics. So, I mean, they're making tiny steps in that direction. But I mean, and the point about that it is illegal in, still in many places, though it is not in most of, in a, in a large swath of America now. Lots of things are illegal, lots of places that don't inform that policy. Alcohol is illegal in some places, and like taking a drink isn't a problem. So for WADA or the IOC to stand behind that, to hide, kind of hide behind that seems ridiculous. Like the, if it doesn't help you perform, then what are we talking about? I saw, I saw a take um, that was like, well, it, it it's helping you by taking away your stress. So, you know, maybe it's it's okay. It matters what you're, you know, what you're not feeling as, you know, opposed to the performance enhancers. Um, and that seems absurd to me as well. It's like, what are you going to, you know, ban yoga because it helps right. someone relax? That's like, a what? take in search and of a take, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, it was so bad. <laughs> it also might increase your paranoia and stress. Yeah, right? What, I mean, what if it you makes try? you consume a lot of Cheetos the night before a race? It could actually hurt you more than not. When I was at the Wall Street Journal, we did do a story once, which everyone should look up because it's funny on how it was considered a performance enhancing drug, or there's people arguing as a performance enhancing drug when you were running ultra marathons. 
um, which was interesting just because it surely was helping with boredom when you're running, you know, 70 <laughs> miles or whatever these maniacs run nonstop. Uh, but that's I mean, the only exception I can think of. And in that case, like, yeah, like good, right? Like <laughs> anything to keep you occupied. So there's also been a lot of criticism of the IOC coming from Japan, where a survey in May showed that 83% of Japanese people did not want the games to go forward this summer, which is wild. So so let's say that I appointed the three of us the new heads of the IOC, which I definitely want to do, and we'll get right on that after this podcast. How would you guys address the Japanese public's concerns about holding the games when we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Are there are there other ways the games could go forward that even in ordinary times would put less of a strain on the host city? Okay, listen, hosting the Olympics sucks. And it's a real problem for the IOC. This is more so of a problem, I believe, in the Winter Olympics, as going forward, because hosting the Winter Olympics, you're really seeing a lack of interest from cities. Just look at the bids. You know, I think Beijing, which hosts, you know, next winter, which is remarkable, was only up against Kazakhstan. And, you know, there was a lack of bids. A lot of the traditional hosting countries, the Scandinavian countries, their people were adamantly did not want their country to host the Olympics because it's it's not a great deal. And the best thing you often get from the Olympics is the sort of influx and in tourism, you get, you know, the restaurants, the hotels, you get all these people coming in that that does give, you know, the economy a boost. And now you're taking that away from Japan. And it it, it makes sense. You know, I, I think you're always going to have a certain degree of backlash from the residents of the host. I mean, look at New York when the people in New York, when the New York was considering bidding for their or bidded for the Olympics, and there were, most New Yorkers were adamantly against it. Um, so you're always going to have some of that, but now to have this special circumstances in a pandemic year is making it even harder. And I don't, I don't really know, <laughs> I don't really know how to to mend that issue. I think that is just. Uh, bad luck on Tokyo's part, but I think it's also, you know, reflective of the problematic nature of of host cities and how much money they have to shell out. And I think long term, and I'm talking like way down the line, I think the idea has been floated about a permanent location for the Olympics, which makes, to me, good sense. I mean, it's always fun to go to these different countries and see the different cultures and all that. But I think they might have to start considering that. I know they've already started considering that for the Winter Olympics, but I think it might be the way to to solve this because it'll keep coming up. Yeah, and I think there's two questions. One is sort of short term and about these specific Tokyo Olympics. And then there's the larger question, like you've alluded to, Jeff, about the the Olympics in general and how they should be handled. And in this particular case, I mean, it seems like one of the things they can do is just, you know, I think once the athletes start to sort of arrive, but they're tested and they're kept in bubbles and, you know, you kind of do basically what the NBA did last summer, but on steroids, although you can't do steroids <laughs> because yeah, Wada would, <laughs> would pot, uh, be very upset. Yeah, they're on pot. Uh, that would actually be a bad idea. That would be like lackadaisical bubble building. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, yeah, like I think if the athletes aren't uh, aren't testing positive, positive, or if they are, they're being quarantined and sort of 
there isn't this perception that the athletes are creating a super spreader event. And I don't think they should, uh, you know, in the sense that we've seen this work in other contexts in the middle of the pandemic in, you know, places where it was actually even worse. You know, it was worse in the U.S. last summer than it uh, and, and into the fall than it is in Tokyo right now. So uh, I think there are ways that they can kind of build a bubble and uh, protect the athletes, but also protect everyone else from the athletes. Uh, and, and it just comes down to testing and tracing and all the things that we've learned how to do. You know, if the IOC doesn't have a problem spending or if, you know, at least putting uh, Tokyo on the hook for $15.4 billion. But, uh, you know, in terms of just the cost of this Olympics, you know, if, if money is no object, then uh, a really robust testing and tracing operation should be good enough. And and I think that number, that 83%, that was from May. I think the number has dropped to around half now, which is something that the IOC predicted. They said as the games get closer, people's you know negative uh, perception of it will kind of go down and they'll uh, people will be more on board with it. Now, I don't know. Uh, they probably still could set a new record for lowest approval rating for games on like the day of the opening ceremonies. That will probably happen if, if that number is even being tracked. Uh, historically. But at the same time, you know, I do think that maybe they can ease the concerns just by showing that like the athletes are not creating a a spreader event. But in the bigger picture, it is sort of a a huge question as to like, why would anyone host the Olympics aside from corrupt autocratic governments that don't really have any issues with, you know, using, um, you know, overworked uh, labor to build monuments to their own greatness that then fall into disrepair as soon as the Olympics are over. So (laughs) (laughs) those are arguments for having the permanent sites, having uh, having it hosted at places that already have infrastructure built up for the games. Uh, And, you know, maybe if you want it to be a showcase for uh, a country that doesn't always get to host the games, have parts of it hosted there, have certain events, you know, hosted there. But there I think a lot of people involved with the Olympics, like ex-Olympians and sort of international sport people are thinking about this idea of like, well, why have a single host city? Why not spread it out across multiple cities? Why not think about having permanent facilities that host um, some of the events? And and back in the day, you kind of had to go to a place to to see it and, and, you know, take in the Olympics. There wasn't like streaming there wasn't um coverage wall-to-wall coverage of like all of the the events and everything i think we're just sort of in a different place now uh media wise and and in people's habits of consuming sports than we were when the olympics certainly when they started but even when they started becoming sort of a big global event that that people coveted the right to hold so i do think that the olympics need to adapt to that and maybe this is like surveying the mistakes of Tokyo and other recent Olympics could be a chance to uh, make changes going forward. I'm really into the idea of having events be in different places, you know, have it be a global competition where the competition's all happening at the same time, but it's happening all across, all around the world. That feels very in the spirit of Olympic sports to me, whatever that, that means. But I, I think that's kind of cool. I had never thought about that until like I hadn't really seen that suggested anywhere until like this last week. And I was like, oh, yeah, why don't we do that? They're kind of doing that. I mean, they're, they're testing that with the euro that's currently going on. And but there was a lot of people who, you know, didn't like the idea of, of holding the 
the Euro tournament all across Europe. But I think now that it's started and we're into the semifinals and the the soccer's been really entertaining, no one really cares. I think we've kind of gotten past that. And and in terms of the, um, you know, it is, I think, a lot dependent on the economy of the country. I think a, a, a country with a real top rate economy can host it with a lot more ease. You know, like the London 2012, I don't think got a lot of backlash, whereas... Rio, there was a lot of backlash from the Brazilians and, you know, what they were sold and and how the money that was coming in was being put to use and was it, you know, doing anything to sort of help the infrastructure and stuff like that and complaints on that. So I think you'll always, and I think what you'll see maybe going forward is a shift to these more first world countries. Look at the next two, Paris and Los Angeles and the way they kind of got those bids and the way they, you know, pursued those bids is not to have to build a lot of stadiums and create something from scratch, which is really, you know, where countries get in a lot of trouble with the Olympics losing a lot of money and instead use the existing facilities. And that's sort of why 84 Los Angeles, which, you know, remember, they weren't supposed to host in 84. It was kind of a last minute thing. That is the most profitable Olympics of all time because they didn't build anything. So, but even that has its own problems because then what are we just going to go to the same, you know, Paris, Los right, Angeles? And then, and, right. And then we never get to see like other, these other countries showcase. I mean, yeah, it's all really fraught. So having like individual events, different places where you don't have to build huge infrastructure, you can use what you have. You don't have to have host all of these people. You host a few of them. That just seems to make so much more sense. And then you could still do a thing in Rio and a thing somewhere else. I, I, I think that, that that idea makes so much sense to me, which is why I'm sure we'll never actually do it. <laughs> <laughs> it makes too much sense. Anyway, all, all of this stuff happening has made it pretty hard to get excited about the actual games. We will, in the next couple of weeks, talk more about what we are excited to see in the Olympics. Um, but for now, we're sort of left with a bad taste in our mouth over the Olympics. Let's leave this discussion here for now. We'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Neil. The talk of baseball this season when we're not talking about sticky substances and what seems like a million other controversies has clearly been Shohei Otani of the Los Angeles Angels, and that has been for some pretty good reasons. He currently leads the major leagues in home runs with 31, which would put him on pace for 60 over a full 162-game season. He's also 3-1 and with a 3.60 earned run average as a pitcher in 60 innings, and uh, you have to love the fact that his OPS as a hitter is 77% better than average, and his ERA is 28% better than average as a pitcher. There's really nothing that he can't do. And as a result of all of those gaudy two-way stats, Otani has spent much of the season leading baseball in total value, according to wins above replacement, between both his hitting and his pitching. As of July 1st, he was also the betting favorite for AL MVP. And this comes despite the fact that, with apologies to Jared Walsh, Otani has almost single-handedly been carrying the Angels, keeping them afloat with a 500 record on the season. They still only have a 6% playoff probability, but that's pretty amazing given the fact that future Hall of Famer Mike Trout hasn't played due to injury since May 17th. 
so for his nearly unprecedented two-way excellence, Otani made history this week when he became the first player selected to the All-Star game as both a hitter and a pitcher. Oh, and he'll also participate in the Home Run Derby just for good measure. Again, there's really nothing that he can't do, and I really love the fact that he's willing to give it a try. And I think about a comparison in basketball. LeBron James never competed in the slam dunk contest, and I don't really fault him for not wanting to uh, risk injury with that. It did kind of work out for him with those eight straight NBA Finals appearances, four championships. But it would have been so entertaining to see him on that stage, and that's basically what Otani is giving us right now. Now, I did mean to say that Otani's feats are nearly unprecedented in the realm of two-way stars. So Babe Ruth, to whom Otani is often compared, was in his third-to-last MLB season when the first AL versus NL All-Star game began in 1933. Uh, and so he was far removed from being a regular pitcher and never really had a chance to replicate that double All-Star uh, nod that Otani just got. But Ruth would have had a strong chance in 1917. He put up 6.7 war per 162 games as a pitcher and 2.2 more as a batter and then he would have done it again in 1918 he had six war per 162 as a batter and three as a pitcher so he had a season where he was uh strong uh, two seasons where he was really strong at both but one better as a batter than a pitcher and one better as a pitcher than a batter now, the same could be said, really, honestly, to an even greater extent about Kansas City Monarchs two-way standout Bullet Rogan, who many listeners may not even know, but his incredible numbers are finally getting acknowledged with stats from the Negro Leagues starting to be included in MLB records, which is what Baseball Reference added them in uh, last month. Rogan had seven different seasons where he did what Otani is doing right now, so playing at a three-war pace or better per 162 on both sides of the ball. In 1922, Rogan had 8.7 war per 162 as a batter and 8.8 as a pitcher, which is really crazy. That's like a double MVP candidate, Uh, one as a batter, one as a pitcher, if you split him out into two separate players, but he was doing it at once. And that's really incredible, even in comparison with what Otani is on pace to do in 2021. But just like with Ruth, the Negro Leagues didn't have a formal All-Star game until 1933. That was when the annual East-West All-Star game was established. And by then, Rogan was mostly playing in independent leagues, touring with barnstorming clubs in Hawaii, the Philippines, Japan, and China. So his lone East-West All-Star appearance came in 1936 at the age of 43, meaning that his best years also came before the All-Star game era of the Negro Leagues. But it is telling that you have to go back to Rogan and Ruth, who last pitched more than than single-digit innings in a season in 1928 and 1919, respectively, to find comparisons for a player who's dominating as both a batter and a pitcher like Otani is doing right now. And that leads us into what is a rare hot takedown rabbit hole take, courtesy of MLB Network's Brian Kinney. Take a listen. In 1919, Babe Ruth led Major League Baseball in on-base, slugging, OPS, total bases, but he only hit and pitched at the same time for about three months before he was switched to a hitter only. The point is, doing both at the same time, even before the age of air travel and advanced analytics scouting reports, was very difficult. Ruth could pitch and hit. Otani can pitch and hit. They both proved it. But doing both at the same time, even Babe Ruth couldn't do it. Now, Kenny, whose takes are almost always hot takedown approved, has been wondering for a while whether Otani can keep up this level of two-way performance as both a batter and a pitcher at the same time. He points to the fact that Ruth 
really wasn't himself as a hitter when he was asked to start eight times on the mound in August 1918. And then the following season, he wasn't really asked to pitch almost at all down the stretch run in 1919 while he was leading MLB in pretty much every important hitting category. So I want to pose to you guys the questions that Brian raised, which is, is this going to be sustainable for Otani going forward? Is it fair for the Angels to lean so heavily on him as both an MVP-level batter and an all-star-level pitcher at the same time? Or should we just sit back and enjoy the Otani show while we can? <laughs> I, I don't think it's sustainable, to be honest. Just the nature of injuries and the... It, it just doesn't... It, it, I mean, look, I, I'm, part of me is like sort of surprised it hasn't happened earlier. Um, I know we've had good hitting pitchers. You know, we've had Mike Hamptons and, you know, Dontrell Willis, Carlos Sombrano. The Jacob guys, DeGroms of the Jacob world. Jacob DeGrom and his, what, <laughs> 340 batting average. But yeah. he's more of a slap hitter. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> but, you know, because often you watch any, like, sort of uh, grade school baseball game or high, even high school, I think that's still true, that best hitters, more often than not, the the pitcher because that's just generally where they put the best athletes um so i'm sort of a little surprised it hasn't quite happened um you know in between ruth and otani but i also worry that it's just you know the amount of stress the pitching puts on your body that at a certain point they're going to realize are we jeopardizing our best hitter to preserve them to pitch once every five days Um, that the Angels might have to make a tough decision. You know, it's kind of like a little bit reminds me of Bo Jackson, where it was so fun for a little while there. But then I think when we look back on Bo Jackson, we're like, wow, that guy, you know, I mean, I know the hip injury was kind of fluky, but maybe he should have just been one of the best running backs of all time. Yeah, I um. You know, it's it's he's it's interesting because there are more. It seems like there are more of these guys who who are who could be two way, who could be pitchers and hitters, and yet that's that's always in tension in tension with the nature of pitching to be so extreme and the the need for specialization, at least the need thus far for specialization. Um, and so you do wonder if like. Otani's success might encourage more teams to go for it with their hitters who can pitch a little or their pitchers who can hit a little or whatever. And and maybe the Angels keep going with it with Otani. Or is he going to get hurt and then like, no, we're never doing this again. You know, it could it could really I could see it really going either way. I mean, right now he's on just this just such a role. It's so much fun to watch. But, you know, then we have to remember he did get hurt you know, this, this has been delayed a little bit because of his injuries. So I don't know. I like seeing it, but I know that, you know, pitching, it's not like it's getting less specialized. It's getting more specialized. It's getting, you know, it's one of the, it's one of the reasons I think we should get rid of the pitchers hitting because I think we want our pitchers to be not up there flailing. Now Otani makes the case, you know, against that, but he's definitely the exception to the rule. I feel like it usually goes the other way. Like, isn't this, you know, we saw this with Rick Ankiel. Like, it was like, okay, I might not be a very good pitcher, but I think I can play every day as a hitter. Did Micah Owens do that also, I feel like? I think he tried to. Yeah, there's been a few guys that were good enough hitters as pitchers that they could at least think about doing it which I think is funny to, you know, it's sort of like, 
uh, what what is more valuable? I mean, that's sort of the question that the angels have also uh, with Otani is like, is it more valuable to have a guy who I think he's a better hitter than he is a pitcher? You know, his career OPS plus is higher than his career ERA plus, uh, for instance, and it seems safer uh, on on the investment that is his body to go out and hit every day, especially since he's DHing. But then that kind of takes away some value. Uh, so yeah, would you like a half as valuable Otani, but still you know a really great hitter? Or yeah, play this game where you try to kind of squeeze as much value. And the great, I mean, the the thing that makes it so hard is he's game for it. You know, he's game for just about anything. Like, uh, I love the fact that he's maximizing his abilities in a way that sometimes we see athletes be sort of like hold something back or they're like, oh, I don't want to try this because I might get hurt or I might, you know, I, I might not be good at it or whatever. He's like, yeah, God gave me an incredible arm and an incredible bat and I'm just going to use these, you know, and there's something special about that. Yeah, and you know he's always been that way. He was he was that way in the Japanese league. There were definitely coaches in that league that were trying to steer him in one direction or the other. And I think a lot of his decision making was based on which team will allow me to do both because I want to do both. And I think that's his will to do both is a big reason he's here. I think a, there would have been a lot, many opportunities down his career to go with one or the other. We see athletes sort of make that decision all the time, whether it's, you know, different sports or different positions. And I I think he's, he's always wanted to do this. So that's a big factor. And I will, I think, you know, as long as he's doing both of these things and doing them so well, it's, it's good for the game. I mean, I never, I do not care about the home run derby and I'll be watching to watch him in it. I I do not care about the home run. Home run derby is great. Oh, it's dumb. Who cares? You know what? I'm mad still because I had a player on my fantasy team in the home run derby several years ago, and he got hurt during the derby and then didn't basically didn't play the second half of the season. So I'm still mad about that. Also, it's boring, and I would rather just have the I would rather just have games. I hate the All Star break. That is my hot take. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Always, I know. The just home like, run derby is, has been my favorite of all the skill competitions in all sports. I don't know how I mean, you feel about that. I mean, it's probably my Neil. favorite of all the skill competitions, too, but I still don't think any of them should take place. So, well, I, also, Otani is sort of uh, tempting the fate of the the curse of the home run derby, which I think we found was BS or <laughs> just regression to the mean. I'm trying to remember. I feel like we did a story on that at some point. But there is the perception that if you participate in the home run derby, that somehow it'll like you'll either get hurt, like you said, Sarah, or it'll just affect your swing and then you won't be the same player. And uh, Otani's just like, eh, well, let's see what happens. You know, and I think that's great. All right. Well, we'll see how we'll see whether Otani can keep up this pace. But boy, it's been fun so far. What a great what a great story for baseball. And, you know, especially while the the sticky stuff has been going on. It's like baseball has this redeeming thing happening with Otani. They're lucky. They're lucky to have Otani. That's for sure. All right. That will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. 